Up next on Stack Overflow, it's the special listener question show. Jeff and Joel answer questions from the audience on making the transition from developer to manager, how to get things done, the hidden value of in-person code reviews, and much more from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like, you know what? I feel like that robot in, in Wally at the end when he gets reset, and he just becomes a... I don't want to spoil it. Yeah, you're going to... Spoilers, man. What are you doing? Sorry, sorry. That was a great movie. Go see it. Okay. Um well, hey, we, we can disagree. You said we agree too much. I was actually disappointed with Wally. I really what? was. Are you I, kidding? I really found it disappointing. It was by no means bad. It's not. I mean, I don't, Pixar is kind of like Blizzard. I don't think they can do anything that's really bad. <laughs> but it was pretty low on my list of favorite uh, Pixar movies. It was probably barely in my top four. Yeah, I, I don't know. Was, I, I thought it was fantastic. It, it didn't really work for me on a couple levels. It was by no means bad. I liked it, but uh, yeah. There we okay. go. We can disagree. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you're because you're a moron. <laughs> it's a minority opinion, man. You, you know, know what today is? Uh, what? Do you know Tuesday? What today is, today is um, all questions day. Oh, that's right. It is all questions day. Ooh, I do have a tiny bit of business before we start, though. I promise. Today is all questions day. I want to be clear about that, which mm -hmm. is good because we've been well, lackadaisical about getting to the questions. Just just format your business as a question. Yes. So, question. When are we going to beta? Uh, so, <laughs> so minus, uh, minus editing, um, it's actually looking like we're going to start letting people in. What I'm doing this week is... Uh, we finally have an authentication method in, which is awkward for us because normally everything is public. So we have to actually add authentication, which is code that will never be on production. Um, we've added that. And I'm letting a few designery type people in to look at the site and help us sort of clean up our crufty, the fact that we're using tables instead of divs a lot of places. And just, no, keep the know. tables. Tables are great. <laughs> well, where they make sense. I mean, I, I just want people who are good at CSS to come. I'm, I'm okay at CSS. You know, we've been writing a lot of code. So that's really the, the short-term goal is to clean it up. It, it's getting close to being ready for some kind of human consumption. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And we have, I think, over 400 people on the beta list. So I think I'm going to start trickling people in uh, probably before the end of the month now. So a little ahead of schedule, um, which is good. Uh, a little bit ahead of late schedule. Yeah, a little bit ahead of our late schedule. Yes, because an additional two weeks is going to, you know, kill people. Right? <laughs> it's the first software project in the history of time that's been even slightly late. Uh, then on logistics, just so we're clear, I, I don't know that people know how – what's the right word for this? I don't want to use the word uh, shoestring, <laughs> but this is – we're on a very limited budget in terms of what we're doing in terms of manpower and time and things like that because mm -hmm. we have one full-time person, which is me. Uh, we have two people that I recruited that I used to work with that are very much part-time. I yeah. pay them – 
what you might call slave wages. So yeah, you get some money like, to buy cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, they can buy <laughs> liquor and cigarettes and things like that. You know, things that programmers need. <laughs> things that 15-year-olds uh, can't get exactly. on their allowance. Yep. And, and to their credit, these guys are doing this largely out of, I don't want to say the goodness of their heart, but because they know me and, and they believe in the project. So they're sort of contributing some sort of basic sweat equity to the project. So it's not like we have this giant pool of venture capital. I mean, this is basically self-funded to this point by me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it, it, it's sort of a minimalistic endeavor. I mean, I think what we're going to end up with is going to be pretty cool. And it's going to be kind of a community effort too, where I've been posting on the blog about what we're doing and try to solicit input and things like that. And eventually we might open source the code as well. Um, but it, it's not like we have this giant pool of venture capital money like some companies. It's uh, very much a small endeavor that we're taking on. But that said, uh, uh, people will start trickling into the beta before before the end of the month now. So mm-hmm. that's where we are, because people keep asking, and I just wanted to address that. You asked a, uh, I, 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 uh, I noticed you asked uh, one of the questions that you asked on the blog was, uh, how should you handle um, sort of maintenance recurring tasks in general? Yes. Is that a fair characterization? Every, every website has some tasks that you don't want to execute at the time that a web page is loading, but you want to execute, you know, with some Recurrent recurrence of some sort. Yeah, background tasks. Sort yeah. Of thing. So, what did you figure out? Well, the I originally asked on Twitter um, because I just wanted something lightweight that would. <laughs> I really didn't want to write like a Windows service. I felt like that was like out of band code. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus, the 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 code that actually does the work is is a web page. In fact, because to me, that's just a logical unit of work on a website is a web page. So it really is like we're just calling back into the website. It's just like another request that goes mm-hmm. on on the website. So I viewed it as something that should stay in line. Uh, and the, the little approach we came up with that was recommended to me on Twitter was essentially to add something to the application cache with a fixed expiration. And then you have a callback. So when that expires, it calls a certain function that does the work. And then you add it back in to the, uh, to the, to the, to the cache with the same expiration. So it's it's... A little bit maybe ghetto, maybe is the right word. Well, it is kind of <laughs> ghetto because really well. it's not going to work for a long – if it's a long request. Well, it will. It's just the timing will be off, right? Because say it takes 60 seconds for this thing to run, mm-hmm. then the intervals are going to be screwy. Well, doesn't that mean that some guy comes and hits our web page and some random one of his requests will suddenly take 60 seconds because it has to update this thing in the application cache which is going off and doing your maintenance tasks? You could. I mean, it's security by obscurity, right? I mean, I'm not really... No, 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 no. There's no... There's no I'm not talking about security here. I'm talking about just some guy has one of his pages take longer than expected because that random page is, is required to do some work. Uh, I don't think so because one of the big strengths of, of web apps is they're essentially... They're really paralyzable because every web page is a unit of work and the only shared resource is what? The database? The CPU? So as long as you're not monopolizing one of those two things, I would expect other incoming requests to be essentially unaffected. They're not going to block. I'm not basically. talking about the other requests. I'm talking about that particular request. Just some random person comes in, and his request... Let me see if I can understand this mechanism here. There's a whole bunch of people all over the world hitting our website. Right. And at some point, 10 minutes have elapsed, and some, some maintenance task has to execute. Yep. And so some random unlucky person just hits a random unlucky web page, and the cache is now expired... And that causes that random unlucky person to now have to wait while we do that maintenance task. No, I think it'll happen in parallel. I mean, the only they would never have to. How will it happen in parallel? The same way that when you and I go to Fogbugs, we both retrieve a web page at the same time. 
I mean, this is just a thread on, on the server internally. I know, but it's the thread that he was trying to use to, to see the homepage. I don't think it's the same thread. I think this is something that happens on a different thread. I'm I mean, I could be wrong about that, but certainly I've never seen this, this mechanism here. Yeah. Well, you know, if people are concerned, I mean, we certainly can move this out. I mean, oh. part of what we're doing is, you know, getting things up for the beta so that, again, all the functionality is there so people can actually comment on the functionality and not what they imagine the functionality well, to be. Well, let me, t- let me in, the, in, the, in the spirit of anecdotes, let me tell you how, how we do this in Fogbugs because Fogbugs has a lot of tasks. And, indeed, we don't want to rely on anybody hitting the web page to cause these tasks to happen or to, or to trigger them to, to, to occur because – you know, somebody might have a Fogbugs account just not log on all night, and in the meantime, you know, Fogbugs is, for example, receiving incoming email and it needs to reply to it, and it needs to be doing all this stuff, even right. though uh, nobody's hitting the web pages. And we we also don't want that stuff to have to happen on at the same time as a as a request. Not not, not I don't mean in a different thread. I mean actually in the thread with the person's request, which it sounds like what you're planning to do would would have that effect. And so uh, unless I'm misunderstanding something. but So anyway, so here's how Fogbugs does it. Um, we, we wanted all that code to live in the same code with the rest of Fogbugs because we want all the same libraries to be available. We just want it to right. be, like you said, it's got to be a web page. It's got to be in the same you know, app space, not like some separate process that does separate things and needs its own database connection or anything like that. We just wanted it to be as if it were a web page, except that right. it's doing background tasks. Right. And uh, so what we have is uh, a special page that's called heartbeat.asp. And Heartbeat, because uh, Fogbugs is, uh, started out as ASP. Um, I won't go into the story as to what it really is. <laughs> so we have this special page called heartbeat.asp. And um, that page, whenever you hit it, and anybody can hit it at any time, doesn't hurt. Um, but when that page runs, it checks uh, a queue, uh, and, you know, it, it checks a queue of, of waiting tasks to see if there's anything that needs to be done. And if there's anything that needs to be done, it does one thing and then looks in that queue again. And if there's anything else to be done, it returns a plus. And the entire web page that it returns is just a single character with a plus in it. And if there's nothing else to be done, the queue is now empty, it returns a minus. So anybody can call this and hit it as many times. You can load up heartbeat.asp in your web browser and hit control R, control R, control R, control R, and, and until you start getting minuses instead of pluses. And when you've done that, Fogbugs will have completed all of its maintenance work that it needs to do. And uh, so that's the first part. And then the second part is a very, very simple uh, Windows service, uh, which runs, and its whole job is to call heartbeat.asp, and if it gets a plus, call it again soon. And if it gets a minus, call it again, but not for a while. So basically, there's this Windows service that's always running that has very, very, very simple task of just hitting a URL and looking to see if it gets a plus or a minus. And and then scheduling, you know, when it runs again based on whether it got a plus or, or got a minus. And obviously, you can do any kind of variation you want on this theme. Like, for example, uh, you could actually, instead of returning just a plus or minus, you could say, okay, call me back in 60 seconds or call me back right away. I have more work to be done. Right. And uh, that's how it works. So that maintenance service, it just runs, you know, it's, it's like, you know, a half page uh, of code. That, that runs that maintenance service, and it never has to change, and it doesn't have any of the logic in there. It just contains the, the tickling that causes these web pages to uh, uh, get called with a certain guaranteed frequency. And so um, 
uh, you know, and inside that web page on heartbeat.asp, there's code that maintains a queue of tasks that need to be done and looks at how much time has elapsed and does, you know, late night maintenance and every seven days delete all the older messages that have been marked as spam and all kinds of just maintenance background tasks. And uh, that's how that, that does that. Right. No, I, I don't think the approach we're using actually intersects with the regular loading of pages. I think it happens in the app domain. Um, so there's basically some pool of threads that the server has. This is the process that, you know, the, the .NET core process that's running the site has. Uh, but that said, if people are concerned, we can certainly move it out, too, because the unit uh, work. It's very confusing. It, because yeah. it, you said it's a cached application thing, but who, like, what? <laughs> when the cache yeah. expires, it, it's not going to recalculate that thing until somebody reads it. No, it will. It will. It will do it if nobody. I can watch it happen in my own box. I can just set oh. a breakpoint on the line, and it just happens even if I'm not hitting the website. Now, but there is. Oh, one okay. Caveat. I didn't get that. I was missing that whole that whole if part. If the app domain, if the app domain is not spun up, I do think that it will not run. In other words, say nobody was hitting the site at all. Yeah. I do believe that to be true. That it actually will never spin up this thread, which is actually okay. But to me, this is this is fine because. Eventually, we may move it out of band to another, you know, to to a scheduled task or something, or a cron job or something like that. Um, but having the unit be the web page is the core concept, and I think you did the same thing on Fogbug, and I would agree that's the right way to do it because then we have flexibility if we want to move it out and schedule it externally. It's really trivial to do that. You just do an HTTP request from, you know, some URL yep. retrieval executable. Yep. Uh, so that's fine. Now it's still a little bit ghetto in the sense that. Uh, you better not time out anything, because if you time out, then IIS will be like, hmm, this web page is taking too long, and it'll shut you down. Yeah, no, there's a bunch of caveats around it, but it's it's, it's good enough for, for beta. Um, again, right. goal being, I want people to see the site as it's supposed to work and comment on that functionality, not the imaginary functionality we're promising. So, oh. Oh. Okay, so, this, so is the good. All, this is the all questions day. Yeah, where we spent 15 <laughs> minutes talking about our own stuff again. <laughs> So how have you been? <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> uh, I got a whole bunch of questions queued up. I'm just going to do them in, in random order. Here's a question from Gordon Milne. Hi, guys. My name is Gordon Milne. Um, I'm a software developer, well, team leader these days, uh, working in New Zealand. Uh, question I have for you is I've got this opportunity to possibly pursue a more managerial role um, than the one I currently pursue. And I obviously have a few worries about that main ones being simple trivial stuff like you know giving up in development um how do you in particular joel how do you feel about uh, making that transition where you're less hands-on day-to-day and you're responsible for the feeding and well-being of a team of anywhere from three to twelve developers uh yeah it sounds like a terrible idea <laughs> um well i'll 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 uh, i'll answer since you address me but but i'll uh uh, just give you my my rough impression. The, the the idea of being a there there are way too many companies that that promote a developer to be a manager because they were a really good developer, or they were the best developer or something, and that's usually a pretty bad idea. And in fact, um, team lead or management skills uh, often don't correlate. More often than not, do not correlate with uh, development skills. They're just they're just they're just different things. It's just like you know making pizzas and taking out appendices and they're just completely different skills and being really good at one skill uh, or being really good as a developer is often not really a sign that you're going to be good as a manager. 
Although that's not uh, really what what Gordon asked. For all I know, Gordon is a uh, moderate <laughs> or poor developer, and will be a very good manager because he's really good at the interpersonal uh, skills or or, or uh, personnel management or just sort of the human relations side of things. So what you're saying is you want to pick your worst developers and make them the managers. Is that what sometimes. I'm hearing? <laughs> sometimes, although sometimes not. I mean, sometimes they're just they're bad at both. But 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 somebody's uh, in economic terms, somebody's going to have competitive advantage as, as being a manager. It's going to be the person who uh, is 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 most best, most relatively best at uh, at um, motivational issues, understanding what people want, what motivates them, and what they're going to think when you tell them. X, Y, or Z, uh, and so on. So you uh, have to move from being a compiler person, or an interpreter person, I guess, to yeah. a people person. So you're saying that that people transition is the most important. It's not so much how much technical, but you just have to have enough technical ability to know when people are lying to you. That's the way I like to look at this. That's true, and like you also have to... developer says, we're just going to frim-fram the blim-blam, and the manager goes, oh, okay, go do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Are you really capable of your doing your job at that point if people can just lie to you? <laughs> you need you need a couple of t- things in terms of technical chops. One is you need to be able to thoroughly understand what's going on and call people out on their bullshit cuz believe me they will try. <laughs> and uh, number two, uh, you need to uh, have their respect, which means technical respect often to technical people if they don't respect you from a technical level, uh, it's going to be very hard uh, to get things done. Um, although that that shouldn't necessarily be true. I mean maybe you could imagine somebody comes from a business background and, and uh, maybe the developers understand that he's really good from a business background and understand that and are willing to give him or her that respect. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter. Most of the time, uh, to, to, to pull it off, you're going to need to have some, some serious technical chops, I think. Uh, and it really is just a sort of different, different kind of career. And there's ways, I mean, I guess I can point to a couple of real no-nos, which are things that Hmm, people I know might have done, maybe including myself. Uh, n- number one is it, when you're a developer and you're not so good at, you're not so clear on dealing with human resources or personnel issues or that particular aspect of management. Um, there's a real tendency just to say, well, you know, I'm not really starting out as a full-time team lead. I'm still going to want to write code. And that's a valuable thing to say. And you say, you know, maybe I'm going to spend 50% or 80% of my time writing code, and I'll try to keep that human resources aspect of my job down to, you know, a day a week or a couple of hours a day. And that's fine. And you, you can and should do this, especially it's first-level team lead should certainly still be writing code a lot of the time. And even sort of the, the head of a very, very large team should still be able to find 5 to 10% of their time to write code. But... Uh, um, the trouble is when you do 100% of your time writing code and you sort of say, mm, I'm not so good at this human resources thing, so I'm going to keep doing what I was good at, which is writing code, and I'm just going to kind of ignore those human resource problems and let them resolve themselves. And, and you tell yourself a nice story about how you're being a very hands-off manager and you're, you know, you're, in the, you're in the trenches with your team and you're working on the code with them every day and you're not really a manager so much as just another member of the team. And uh, you can say that, but that's not really going to going to be all that successful for you uh, because there are things that somebody just has to do in in uh, in management and if you don't do them because you're not so good at them um, bad things will happen and you'll discover why it was that they needed a team lead in the first place right so it's sort of the paradox like you you can't really write code but yet you have to write a little tiny bit of code so you have to be able to, to let go of the code 
probably more than the average developer, I would say. Because mm-hmm. the whole reason people... It's like you said, why promote someone who's your best coder? I think that's that's probably the pathology here. It's take your mm-hmm. best coder and say, oh, you should be a manager because you're so good at coding. Mm-hmm. And not to look for people that are sort of good at both, maybe not the best coders, but really better at the people thing and willing to devote the time to it. And then, of course, we got to bring up our favorite book, PeopleWare. This was one of my complaints with people that sort of were, were managing me as a developer. It's like they didn't really even put any effort. It's like... How did they learn to do their job? They just sort of came in and did whatever popped into their head. <laughs> I got really frustrated. I was like, oh, well, you know, there's books about what you're supposed to be doing, and like maybe you could read them, <laughs> like figure that out, and just sort of because once you're a people person, you get the idea of oh, I can just talk to people to do my job. And it's like, well, it's yeah, a little bit more than that. I mean, there are some technical things to it. Uh, so again, I would just I, I would say point to people where it's like if you're going to be a manager, then you know that's that's yeah. absolutely required reading at that point, even more than it was before. You should like live it, love it, learn it, right? <laughs> yeah. Book. And uh, and there and there are books about sort of becoming a, a manager. Actually, you know, uh, uh, Rands, uh, Michael Lop, uh, who uses the name Rands on the internet, uh, has a book called I think it's called Becoming a Manager. Uh, is that right? Uh, managing humans or something like managing that. Managing humans. Thank you. Managing humans, and, and a lot of it is on his website, uh, Rands in Repose, um, on the subject. And he's got a kind of an interesting, uh, uh, he's got an interesting um, take on it that comes from uh, working uh, at a rather large company at Apple, where I believe secretly, I don't know if I'm allowed to reveal this. I think he works in the server, on the server team for people that use, it, you know, Apple boxes as their servers, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, he's got this very interesting kind of what how to be a middle manager in a larger organization perspective mm-hmm. where there's a certain amount of managing upwards that you have to do as well, managing expectations and just sort of, you know, some people call it playing politics uh, in order to, but, but playing politics is just a nasty name for, you know, doing interpersonal things where you talk to people and, and you try to affect things that you want to affect. Um, we actually uh, screwed it up for a while at Fog Creek. Um, and uh, we didn't have any kind of middle management at all, and we thought we would get away without middle management for a long time. And uh, it, uh, it didn't work out so well. And the full story of that, I won't tell it now, but the, the full story of, of what happened and, and how we realized that we needed to have managers is uh, going to be in my next column in Inc. Magazine. I think it's this September, the upcoming Inc. Magazine. I'll link to that for my website when it finally comes out. But uh, uh, if you look for the Inc. Inc. 500 issue, I think that'll be in there. Oh, cool. Well, that was a good question. I enjoyed that one. And, and definitely the, the Rand's book is very good, as, as is PeopleWare. Right. Okay, uh, Jason. Hey, Jeff and Joel. This is Jason Simpleman from North Carolina. Love the show. Keep up the good work. I was wondering what sorts of time management strategies you guys both use. I know with you know, Joel, with running an entire business, you're obviously busy. Jeff, you're fairly prolific in your blog posting, plus working full-time on Stack Overflow. I'm wondering what sorts of uh, time management issues you guys run into. Um, there's another part of this question, which I'll play in a minute, but it's uh, completely unrelated. So let's talk about time management first. I am the wrong person to ask about time <laughs> management. If you're asking me for time management, you're in deep, deep trouble. Really bad. It's not good. So <laughs> I will you let do? Joel take this question. Let me just be, you have uh, a lot of email... You want to get you want to get the uh, uh, you want to go to your video game console. <laughs> and well, first, you like want to clear I, your head by playing some uh, kind of a video game. 
I think it's more like shiny object problem that I have, where I'll get distracted with. Here's a class. Here's a really dumb example. So I'm working on Stack Overflow, which I do actually work on Stack Overflow, <laughs> uh, and I'm looking up uh, something. And it'll remind me of a music video, or like I'll get a music video result in the search. Like, oh, I remember that music video. And then I just have to watch the music video, which relates to the term that right. I was working on. It was actually right. popular. This video by Not a Surf. And I was like, oh, I remember that song. And then of course I had to go watch it. And then I had to go look up the band and see what they were doing. And yeah, so like I said, I'm the wrong person to ask. Uh, I, I think what works in my favor is that when it comes to writing and, and some of the stuff, I feel driven. I feel like I haven't produced anything until it's visible to the public. So that ends up being the thing that drives me. It's like I've seen the positive feedback loop you get of posting things publicly, not only in terms of personal satisfaction, but also in terms of your career, getting answers to your questions. Uh, so so. Living in public, I've started to really believe in. So I feel like if a day goes by and I haven't done something that was publicly visible to someone in the world, then I get really nervous. Like I feel like <laughs> I haven't done anything that day. So that becomes the thing that drives me is having these public artifacts. But it's you know again, I'm, this is um, this is like that's like a Milan Kundera short story there about some guy <laughs> doesn't live unless he's in the public. Well, I, I don't well, mean I don't mean it in the negative. I mean like it, it works on so many levels. You know, it's like. I don't know. I mean, it sounds selfish, and maybe maybe it is. I don't know. But I feel I like to feel like I'm producing things that somebody would find and would actually help them too. You know, there's this great communal work going on that we're all doing, and I'm I like to participate in it. And on some level, I kind of get off on it, obviously. So that that's the way I do it. But I don't run a company. Joel, you should totally take this because you have so many more demands on your time than I do. Right. Well, uh, okay, so I don't, uh, I don't have a great answer, and my answer is going to start a little bit boring, which is to say that I'm a big fan of getting things done. Uh, not that I could read that book. In fact, I was able to save a lot of time and manage my time very well. <laughs> you save time by not <laughs> reading the book. That's skipping awesome. the actual reading of getting things done. Um, but, but let me tell you a little bit about there's a little there's, there's some philosophy there, and there's some, there's some methods, and certainly for the geeks – um, getting things done. Uh, that book is an, is is just an excellent me- method uh, of organizing your life and getting things done and actually being productive with your time. And um, but let, let me I'll give you a couple of insights. One is an insight that I actually learned from from the book before I realized that I was wasting time by reading it, and that was the insight that uh, uh, if you don't have a, kind of a to do list system where you look at something. And then you put it on a list of things to get done. Uh, if you don't have a system for that, then you've got all these nagging little things that you have to do in the back of your head that are going to st- cause stress and make you unhappy. And so uh, the, the basic philosophy is just something comes in, whether through the inbox or you decide you want to do something. And I think the rule is if you can do it in two or three minutes, you just do it immediately. It's not even worth the time to put it on a list. You just do it. You concentrate on getting it done. And, and get rid of it. Just knock out that email and get it out of your inbox as fast as possible. If it's going to take any longer than that, don't let it stay in your inbox or in your front queue, whatever that may be. you got to move it like onto a calendar or onto a long-term to-do list or onto some other list of things that you look at when you have some, some spare time. Um, and you just have to get it out of your brain where, you're, where it's nagging you and causing stress and onto a piece of paper or a to-do list in, in, on, in, on your computer or uh, a task list uh, or, uh, or a Fogbugs database or someplace where uh, it's just going to kind of remind you uh, that you have to do it later and you don't have to have it permanently causing stress. And, and uh, 
Have you been to Merlin Mann's site, the 43 folders? I know, but that seems like another excellent way to waste time instead of getting things done, trying to learn about how to get things done. <laughs> well, it, it becomes, you know, pornography at some level. It's, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> you know, info about how to do things where you're not actually doing things, but you're reading about how to do things. If you were, in theory, yeah. to do them, this is how you, the most optimal way to do it. But I think a certain amount of that is good. Like, certainly, there's some great tips on handling email. Like, and I think you touched on one of them, which is if you have small things come in, and I've actually started to do this too. If I get small emails, I love small emails. If you're going to email me, make it like a Twitter message. Make it really short, something I can answer like immediately, no research, and you right. will get a really fast response. If it's yeah. like a three-page business proposal, it's going to sit in my inbox. Yeah, what it requires a decision. Because... I mean, the amount of thinking I have to do is just just way disproportionate to the email. Um, so so I, I think there's some good basic lessons you can get out of sites like that uh, that I think are helpful. And I think Merlin Mann, who runs that, who's a very funny guy, you listen to his podcast, right, mm-hmm. um, has some really in, good insights on this, this problem, and he's a great person to listen to. I'm also going to – there's a little conference called the Start Conference in August. It's like for startups, which oh. I'm now – a startup. Um, oh. And Merlin Mann's going to be there, so I'm looking forward cool. to meeting him, saying hello to him, and seeing what he has to say about that. But yeah, that's another site to turn to. And I think he started with getting things done as well. I think that was sort right. of the gem of his idea, and he just basically built a website around that. That's my understanding. Uh, now, following uh, following with that, I want to point out another thing. You, you mentioned uh, the, the hypothetical email that sits in your inbox for a long time because there's some complicated decision to be made. And right. uh, we have, uh, fortunately, we've hired a person uh, here at Fog Creek. Uh, Rich, who is kind of a getting things done expert and aficionado and just really has some good understanding about uh, about all this stuff and how to be productive and, and uh, also sane and, and, and keep calm in the face of lots and lots of demands coming in, in from different directions. And one thing he pointed out is he said, don't cherry pick. And what he meant is don't go into your inbox and cherry pick the things that you can do now. If, if you have an inbox, you got to do it in order. You can't do it you can't like pick out the things that are easy that you can just knock out of the way and cherry pick those. And here's why, if I'm understanding it correctly. The theory is if you leave all the complicated stuff that requires a decision in your inbox, every time you go into the inbox to try to find something to work on, you're going to open up every one of those emails and you're going to be thinking about those things and trying to decide those. And you're going to be spinning up. You're basically going to be task switching into thinking about this email that you're not even going to deal with. And so if something stays in your inbox for two months while you try to figure out what the answer is going to be or whether you're going to hire this person who sent you a resume or whatever the case may be, and that just keeps coming back again and again, then every time you go to your inbox, there's, there's the distractions that's going to be there. You have to expend time and mental energy on something that you're not even going to solve. And so that's why it's really important to just get it the heck out of there until you can until you can work on it. So just get it out of your inbox and put it on your calendar or put it on your to-do list with some kind of prioritization. And whatever those things are uh, in your inbox, your to-do list, or your calendar, you just do things in order. You just pick one and you work on it till it's done. You don't allow it to come back again later and, and consume more mental energy and create more stress uh, at, at some later point in time. So I've been doing that, and that kind of helps uh, a little bit. I've been doing that lately, which is just, you know... Um, and there's a, there's a couple other things I do. Sometimes if I really need to get stuff done, I won't even look in my inbox until after lunch. That kind of helps. I'll just pick some actual project to work on. Okay, so uh, enough about uh, time management. There's another question that Jason had. This is the second part of his uh, recording. Uh, Jeff, in response to your recent 
uh, posting about the region blocks in .NET, I was wondering if the uh, the same attitude towards collapsing individual functions uh, also applied, since that is hiding code, or is it more or less to hiding groups of functions that you have an issue with? Well, again, thanks for the time, and uh, keep up the good work. Yeah. That, that one, okay, so I guess I could talk a lot about that, but I'll try to be uh, concise. Uh, it frustrates me a little uh, that the region directive even exists because I, I think historically, if you look at why Microsoft had that, and people at Microsoft have sort of in, implied as much that before Microsoft had partial classes, right? So you can have two classes that are really the same class but in two different files, mm-hmm. right? You can have sort of the auto-generated cruft, in one file that you never have to look at. And really, why would you want to look at it? It's auto-generated. You shouldn't change it. If you change it, that's a pathology. You just never need to see it. From your perspective, it's just magic that happens. Right. Um, and then you have another file, which is the partial class. It's like, oh, here's the stuff that actually matters. Here's my code that does my things that I care about. But they didn't always have that. Partial classes were new to, I think, .NET 2, so Visual Studio 2005 era. Um, so they had to have some way of putting this stuff in the same file. And I'm sure some product manager at Microsoft saw that auto-generated code and said, why did this developer even have to look at this code? And he was he or she was right. But what they came up with was the region directive so that they could collapse all that auto-generated code and say, don't touch this code. It's auto-generated. Warning, warning, here be dragons, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that we have partial classes, I would argue that region is now like horribly abused. <laughs> it had a very specific meaning, I think, early on for Microsoft. And now I've never met a developer that didn't love putting things into, like coming up with 10,000 different categorizations, like a <laughs> huge forest of trees, and just, just carefully deciding where every little thing needs to go. Um, and if you look at the way, for example, like a web page works, like imagine the CNN homepage if every article was collapsed, mm. where every time if you wanted to see something, you had to click on it. Oh, oh, this it is just like silly news. Yeah, it's not really, this is not really the way things were meant to work. This is what search is about, right? It's like you scroll down to the thing you want. You just I, I use Control-I, which is uh, uh, incremental search. I use that all the time. And Control-Shift-F, which is find and project. Essentially, search is my metaphor ch- choice for finding things in code. So I don't spend a lot of time like mousing around looking for code. I think of some keyword that I know is going to be there because we're full of... The world is full of tokens, right? Unique tokens that identify things. Just like search keywords, unique search keywords that identify things. And I control shift F and I, I you know, hit F8 and navigate to the search that I want or control I and get does there that, pretty much instantly. In Visual Studio 2008, does that expand when you, if you search into something that's hidden in a region? It does now. In earlier versions, they screwed that up. Mm-hmm. You're right. That was a huge like problem. Yeah. Was that you couldn't find things in regions, but they did fix that. At least, I don't know, I don't know when which version of Visual Studio got fixed in, but as, as of 2008, for sure, it does work. So my, my attitude towards regions is I just feel like if you're hiding code, you got to really think, why am I hiding the thing yeah. that I'm supposed to be writing? You know, that's a little disturbing to me. Um, so the way we do it on Stack Overflow is, is I'm not totally religious about it. My, my guidance to the team is please use as few regions as you possibly can. And, and there are places where we have regions, to be fair. I'm not going to, like quit the team if we if I see a region or anything ridiculous like that. But just really think about why you're using it. It's kind of like go-to. You know, you should never really use go-to without a good reason, but there, there are still good reasons to use go-to occasionally. Um, um, you just got to make sure you have good reasons. Yeah, I think so a, a lot of times where people are using a region because they want to organize a bunch of their functions behind a page, um, that's probably a good use of a user, my favorite thing, a user control. 
you know, maybe this is an abstraction that you want to just pull out into its own class and have it, you know, sort of isolated and localized and stuff like that. Right. Right. No, I totally agree. I think there's anytime you use region, it's like there's other ways, like partial classes. It's two separate files. That's a much better mm-hmm. solution than to have this silly little region tag that doesn't really do anything. Or even just uh, genuine, actual, like actual classes. And plus, it's an actual line of code. This drives me bonkers. It's like a line of code for the editor. Yeah. I mean, what's what's wrong with this picture? I mean, it's like I, I don't even a comment is useful to, to the humans, but uh, I, I don't even want to. Yeah. So, regions. I think enough said on that. Okay. Um, let's see what else we got here. Let's go to Aviv Ben Yosef. Hello, Jeff and Joe. This is Aviv from Israel, and I wanted to ask you about code review and how you think it should be done. In my workplace, uh, we have uh, an argument whether it should be done um, alone. Uh, you know, after someone checks in his code, I check out, review it, uh, place uh, some comments or send him an email with my comments, and then check it back in, and he reviews it again, etc., etc. Or, um, and this is our new approach, whether about once a day you come to the person he shows you what he's done lately and things like that, and, uh, you know, interactively. Um, or are we missing it at all and you have a better way? Uh, thanks. Keep doing this podcast. It's really cool. Bye. So are you doing any kind of code reviews over there? We we do actually do some form of code reviews. So I have an opinion about this. I think code reviews is one of the most powerful things you can do on a project. I think just having two pairs of eyes... Say you have uh, – it depends how you want to do it. There's many ways to accomplish this. Uh, but let's say for the sake of argument, we had a rule that, okay, every time you check something in, you can't check it in until you've had another developer sit down with you and look at it and just you know, explain to that developer, show it off, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I actually first got into this at my, my previous employer, and at first I viewed it as like a tax. I was like, oh, great. Now every time I check something in, I have to go you know, justify what I've done. But assuming you have sort of a rational workplace, which this is kind of a key thing, <laughs> where your coworkers you know, enjoy working with you and on some basic professional level, it's actually fun to sit down with another developer and see their code and understand how they work and actually have them explain to you why they made the decisions they made. And not in like a... I have to justify my decisions to you way, but a let me show you this cool thing that I did way. And you mm-hmm. would learn you I learned so many things, just little things, like the way developers would use their IDE, um, mm-hmm. tricks, coding tricks that they would do. Yeah. You will learn an astonishing number of things that have nothing to do with the code that's being checked in, just yep. by interacting with your fellow developers on a regular basis. And then two the two eyes in terms of just uh, protecting you from weird codes or architectural decisions that turn out to be bad, you sort of double your your value in the code that goes in. So I'm a big, big believer in this, and I believe it has to be done interactively. I do not believe emailing someone after the fact or instant messaging them, because then it might seem like an interrogation. You know, right. I think if you sit down with someone, you're not going to have that animosity of, oh, why'd you do it this way? Or It just prevents a lot of miscommunications. And I think when it comes to code review, that's really, really important. So I would strongly urge anyone listening to this to really consider... Don't do any kind of offline review. Do it interactively. We do it w- through Skype, um, you know, like we're doing now, uh, and and sometimes screen sharing. But we'll just mm-hmm. talk about which line of code and stuff. So I, I love it, and that's my recommendation. Just make sure you do it face to face or as close to face to face as you can. Yeah, I uh, absolutely agree. Um, 
end of story. And it actually, you know, it, it's it's kind of weird where you said, uh, Aviv, you mentioned that you were having an argument about that. And that implies that there's somebody there who actually thinks that it's better not to do code reviews in person and just to sort of send a little email. And, uh, um, I, you know, I hate to uh, extrapolate from no information whatsoever, but it sure sounds like it's a person that doesn't really like the human communication part of the job so much uh, for whatever reason, or they're, maybe they're not so good at it. But uh, there's nothing you can do. Uh, um, you really learn you learn too much from sitting down with a person and talking. And the, when you stand up after an in-person code review, uh, 90% of the things that you've learned are not directly related to the formal part of the code review, like like we sat down to talk about whatever. And, and it, it's just even... And as Jeff mentioned, watching how you use keyboard shortcuts or your IDE or whatever it is, uh, that's that's the way that, that the teams transmit uh, knowledge of how things should be done. And that's the, that's your chance to see people doing things other than just the pure writing lines of code. So it's right. pretty, and, pretty important. Yeah. And I think programming really, to me, is a very social activity. I mentioned on an earlier podcast that... I was working on Stack Overflow, and the other team, my other team members, even though we have a distributed team, were just unavailable. They were on vacation or some other way. And it just felt very isolated. It just, it, it to me, felt very a very incomplete way to write code. And again, maybe getting back to my attitude that you know I have to produce something public to feel like I've accomplished something in a given day. Uh, if I write code that that one of my fellow developers haven't seen or I haven't explained it to them, did I really do it? Did I really get all the benefit out of writing that code? Uh, maybe that's a minority position. Um, but I feel like writing the code and then the explaining and, and, and sharing the code part is, is just as important, if not more important to me um, for, for, as an activity. So, yeah. Cool. Okay, so that was an unambiguous answer. Uh, here's David McGraw. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is David McGraw, and I'm from Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, what advice would you give to college students who are about to start interviewing these days? And could you give any thoughts to common areas that they always seem to be weak in? Uh, thanks a lot, guys. Keep up the great work. Jeff? <laughs> well, well I haven't done I, – I have done a limited amount of interviewing uh-huh. uh, at some various jobs that I've had. Um, and, and I think my general advice over time evolved into have a portfolio, right? Oh. Like, yeah, like show me what you've done, mm-hmm. right? Like in some – meaningful way, like either screenshots or actually code samples even are fun to look at. Um, And and taken to an extreme, I view it as give me a mini presentation. Like, show me, like, sell me on what you've done. Like, explain it in a way where you give a presentation like you would to a group of, you know, random programmers. And make me, A, understand what it is you did, B, understand why it was cool or good, and C, what you actually learned from it. Um, and I actually had an old blog post on this, and people kind of freaked out a little bit when I when I posted that. It was like, oh, my God, you want, you want me to stand up and give a presentation? <laughs> and for a lot of developers, that's like the worst possible thing they could do, you know, that you could ask someone to do is to give a presentation because it is kind of stressful. Uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. I, I think at the very least just view it as build a portfolio of your work that you can point to. And again, I, I think the more public, the better. I mean, if you've worked on an open source project, that's huge because you can easily point to that. Uh, the more public artifacts mm-hmm. you can generate from your work, I think ultimately the better positioned you will be later in your career. Um, so that's what I arrived at, but those are very general, broad things. And Joel, you do a ton of interviewing, so I'm sure you have a lot to say on this. So, yeah, well, I have a couple of things. The, the, the main thing I wanted to say 
is uh, you, you just have to be yourself. Uh, if you're attempting to prove that you know something that you don't know or you're attempting to act like a hypothetical person that's not really you, uh, it's going to show and you're going to be nervous and it's not going to work very well. Um, if you've never worn a suit in your life, I would have to say don't wear a suit to the interview. Unless, I, I, guess, yeah, I guess you have to wear a suit to certain interviews. But you, if you've never worn a suit in your life, you probably don't want one of those jobs where you have to wear a suit. So seriously consider coming in dressed in business casual. And if that freaks them out, maybe that's not the job that you want. Um, but really, uh, mostly it's about uh, just, uh, just, 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 just being yourself so that, the, so that the interviewer has the best chance to kind of judge you as a person. But I think actually Jeff's advice was even better uh, than, than, than mine. And, and let me uh, tell you why. You know, I, I've written these books about how to conduct interviews. And everybody at Fog Creek, when they interview somebody, comes into that interview with a direct agenda of what's going to be talked about. And if you come and sit through some Fog Creek uh, interviews, um, we're, we're, you're, you're not going to have that much opportunity. I mean, at the end, we'll let you ask questions. But we're going to dictate pretty much what happens during the interview. We're going to tell you to write this code and write that code and show us that you can do this and show us that you can do that. And uh, uh, that works really well for us, the employer, at determining if you're able to do your job. But if you're a programmer and you're uh, applying for jobs, I would bet that three out of four of the interviews that you go to are not really going to do this. And those interviewers that are interviewing you are not really going to be prepared to ask you a whole hour's worth of questions or however long they have on the, on the calendar. And they're not really going to know what to talk about. And they're not going to ask the right questions. And they're just going to kind of hope that I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. I'm not really sure what they're thinking. They, they won't have a plan for their interview. Uh, the Shocking. Interview. You're saying that people don't have a plan yeah. out there in the world somewhere. That's right. There's someone who doesn't have a plan. Yes. They go in there and they're like, hmm, uh, what should I talk about? And you know what? You can tell because they're going to start going over your resume in chronological order. And they'll just, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, big waste of time. So um, so what, what you need to do to prepare yourself against this contingency is say, all right, if I have an hour with a person and the person just sits there and nods, and what, what is the information I want to get across about why they should hire me? And what are the things that I want that person to understand by the end of this interview? And I don't want to leave the room without the person knowing that I've done these things and I can do these things and I'm good at those things and maybe I'm not so good at those other things. Um, uh, maybe. And, uh, and so you should have a plan of, of what you want to illustrate and, and, and why, you're, why you're pretty good at it. And maybe... Uh, you know, an explicit plan, if there's something on your resume, if your grades are kind of low, but maybe not major, or if your grades were low freshman year, but they got better after that, and you want to explain that stuff, uh, make sure that you know when you go into that, that interview, I, I need to get across to the interviewer during this hour these facts. This is why I got bad grades freshman year, or I, I, I really love programming, but I'm not so good at interpersonal skills, or I would really love a job where I could just hack all night long, or I've worked on this project and that project, or I built this thing, or, you know, and make a list of those things. And you want to make sure that you get across and uh, practice with some friends and family and, you know, call up your uh, grandmother. I know she'd love to hear from you and say, grandma, pretend that you're a really bad interviewer <laughs> and just say, so tell me about yourself and I'll do the rest and just practice talking about yourself for an hour in a way which, which portrays yourself in a positive light and which highlights the accomplishments that you think will be relevant uh, to that employer. You know, you bring up a really good distinction there, which is there's there's maybe two kinds of interviews. Ones where the the person being interviewed gets to drive, and mm -hmm. the other being the kind where the interviewer is driving. Yeah. Now, I've I've read, of course, Steve Yeggy, and again, we can't go a podcast without talking about Steve Yeggy. But he wrote a really good interview post, and that was one of the key bits I got out of it that was fascinating. Was like, don't let 
the person you're interviewing drive the interview. It is it is your job, and that's true. If you're doing your job as an interviewer, mm. you're going to come in with an agenda. Right? Yeah. You're going to say you're going to you're going to jump through hoops for lack yeah. of a better term. <laughs> you're going to yeah. do these things. I'm going to yeah. ask you these questions. I'm going to totally drive, right? Some, I mean, so, we, we will, we will at Fog Creek because we we have read my book, <laughs> but uh, yes. but uh, that's not that's not true at all, at all places, of course. And I think for those kind of interviews, mm-hmm. I do think it's a different kind of preparation. And I think you want to do this anyway, but you would want to say, say I was interviewing at Fog Creek, I would go to the Fog Creek website, I would read your blog, I would do all this research about what Fog Creek is, you know, what kind of interview I can expect to to get to there. Um, basically, prepare for the interview, both in the sense of like studying for a test, which, I'll, and I find this unfortunate because I don't really enjoy the the pure testy kind of whiteboard interviews. Um, but you do have to study. Like writing code on a whiteboard is really difficult. I mean, I, I, I write with all these crutches of Visual Studio, and still I kind of suck at it. <laughs> so like writing on a whiteboard, wow. I mean, you would have to practice that. And if people are going to ask you puzzle questions, which I, I hate, 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 hate puzzle <laughs> questions. And I know Michael, I, I was looking up Michael, your partner. Yeah. He has a whole website of puzzle questions. Techinterview.org. Um, Techinterview.org. Oh. Yeah. And it's also talking a about make magazine. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're fun to a certain type of person. I am the type of person that those are like totally nails on a chalkboard to me. Like when I get puzzle questions, I just want to sort of gouge the interviewer's eyes out. Well, <laughs> we don't not really. Yeah. I wouldn't really do that. <laughs> I just I have a, I have a hard time rationalizing how puzzle questions really help me as a developer. <laughs> I know opinions vary. Uh, but you, point being, you have to study. If you're going into an interview where you know they love to ask puzzle questions or they love to have you write code on a whiteboard, you have to prepare for that. I don't. But on the other hand, I mean, you can't. You're not going to be able to practice every single piece of writing code. And if you show up at Fog Creek and we say write stir copy, and you just whisk it out on the board instantly because you practiced and you knew how to do that, then we'll say, okay, not a data point. <laughs> this is not a data point because you just had this memorized or you prepared this. So we need to find something that you haven't prepared. Uh, so specifically, I mean, if I were telling people, how do you prepare for a Fog Creek interview? I wouldn't say you have to study, uh, for a Fog Creek interview. I would say, you know, just, just chill out. Don't worry about it. Study, study our company a little bit, spend some time at our website and at Joel and software, figure out what our products are, um, see what you can, you know, and just come with a few interesting questions, uh, so that you, you look like you actually care about us a little bit. And, um, that, that'll stroke our egos and that's all we need. And, and we'll drive the actual, like the technical part. And I, th- I, I feel like we're pretty good at at that, at driving the technical part here. But, um, but the only other kind of preparation you need, like, like uh, we both uh, mentioned earlier, is make sure that you know what you're going to do if you've got a dud interviewer that is just not, whatever, whatever he or she is doing in the interview is not revealing what you want to reveal about why you're a great candidate and a great person and you should have this job. And if they're just not accomplishing that in their questions, you can often steer the conversation. And a lot of times they'll be really relieved if you, if you say, you know, there's a little pause while they're trying to figure out what to say. Or you see them sort of looking at, the, at your resume and, and kind of stroking their chin. You might want to say, would you like me to tell you about the contribution I made to the OpenBSD file system last, last week? Um, that's pretty interesting code that I just wrote. And uh, – They'll probably say sure, and then you'll be prepared to bang it out and explain it and talk about it on the whiteboard. And that's the hour that you want to prepare, um, so that you have something to do, if uh, if they're not good at finding on their own whether or not you're a good programmer. Right. 
But I, I do think you do need to know sort of roughly what kind of stuff they're going to ask of you because let me give you another example. And I think this is a good interview practice. I actually like this much more than, say, the random puzzle questions. Mm-hmm. At my previous employer, you actually sit down and write a mini app. So you're using Visual Studio, mm-hmm. using SQL Server, using all the things that you're going to use there anyway for the most part. It's not like some imaginary arbitrary compiler you're writing code for. It's the actual tools mm-hmm. Say you got the job, you would need to use anyway. So you're you're, and it's a very simple app. It's not like hard to write or anything. But it's shocking how many people sit down and like really can't produce anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I do believe in that because that's just you know where's the stick shift? You know where's the gas pedal? Can you drive <laughs> the truck? Right. <laughs> and then you can have a conversation about architecture too. It's like oh, for this little app, why yeah. would you decide to do this? And it's a great interview practice. It, it is stressful, like all interviews. Because you're being asked to perform, but they're really cool about it in that they say, you know, look, you know, this isn't a production level app. We just want, you know, something simple. It's, it doesn't have to be super complicated. Um, but it's a great interview practice, and I much prefer that to say lots of puzzles and writing code on the whiteboard and things like that. But again, it's a situation where you want to prepare. When I went in for that interview, I brushed up on my SQL Server because although I've used SQL Server, um, I didn't want to sit down with the tool and then have it, you know, have to refresh my memory and do a bunch of Google searches on really basic things. Uh, so it is nice to, to be able to prepare a little bit for what you're going to see in the interview. I will right. say that. Uh, one, one way to prepare, if you know you're going to a place like Microsoft Google that relies heavily on puzzle questions, uh, you, there's a book called How Would You Move Mount Fuji? All about yeah, a great puzzle question. William Poundstone. Yep. That's uh, a great question. And uh, let's see. Should we take another question or should we talk more about interviews? No, no, no. Absolutely more questions. This is what this show is about. All right. Here's a question from Adam. Hi, Jeff and Joel. My name is Adam Hiley. I'm a longtime C, C++, and .NET developer and have a pure programming question for the two of you regarding a C++ technique that I've never quite found a corollary to in .NET. I often, in lieu of having to create some large, complex wish statement that I have to maintain to call differing functions depending upon the functionality that that I desire, I will simply create multiple functions with the same prototype and then create an array of pointers to those functions, which I can then simply index later, cutting code down from, you know, hundreds of lines of switch statement to uh, a simple for loop or something of the like. Uh, But as .NET does not have pointers, I've never been able to find a way to do basically the same thing in .NET. I'm sure there's a way to do it, but I just haven't found it. If you guys know, that'd be great. Thank you. Ah, this is such an easy question. This is like 59 seconds of asking. The answer is going to take one second. Do you want to? No, you go ahead. Delegates. It's called delegates. That's it. The end. There are function pointers. The end. Next question. Isn't this sort of kind of what lambdas are as well? You're sort of passing a function in as an argument? Uh, you could do it. Uh, well, okay, there's a thing called delegates. That's really the, the first class native.NET way of doing it. A delegate right. is just a pointer to a, to a me- method, uh, yeah. member function in, in a class. Um, there was a cheesy way, which was uh, more common in object-oriented programming, especially in Java. Um, I don't know if Java has delegates because I'm so out of it. But... Uh, uh, there's, a, there's this concept called a functor, where what you do is you create a class that only has one uh, one uh, method called do <laughs> it or whatever, and uh, and then all you got to do is instantiate these class objects and you put those in an array, and uh, now you've gotten the same effect 
as function pointers, except that what you actually have is an object, and the only thing this object has of any interest whatsoever is uh, a single method that always has the same name uh, that you can then call. And if all of the functor classes you create all inherit from the same uh, abstract virtual base class, then uh, uh, all the, you'll be able to do, do that in uh, any object-oriented programming language. Now, a lambda is kind of a way to inline a function, especially a very short function. So mm -hmm. instead of actually having like an array of functions where you define all the functions and then you create an array and you refer to them all by name, a lambda allows you to have those functions be anonymous, never have a name because you've actually inlined the actual code for the function uh, right where you're using it or putting it in an array or whatever it is that you're doing. And uh, lambdas, to be honest, are uh, really more useful with very, very, very short like one, two-liners, and can be uh, a big, uh, well, I mean, it, does, it, doesn't, it certainly doesn't make your code clean or easy to follow if they were long. So if you're going to have, you know, an array of 100 things, and you're just going to put those in lambdas, you might as well make a switch statement, because the code is going to have the exact same structure as a switch statement. Well, there's also anonymous functions in C Sharp, I believe 3.0. Right. Um, so th th there's that as well. So I think there's several techniques, so maybe I'll try to create links to both for Adam. Yeah, um, delegates are really the traditional uh, original way of doing uh, do, of doing this specific thing. And that would be like a real classic old school boy. I remember when uh, I never used to understand function pointers at all uh, until my friend Jason. We had to make a DOS application. This is a, literally a DOS application and we wanted it to have a menu. And I don't know if you remember menus in those days, but they weren't pull-down menus. It was like the screen would come up and it would have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight things you could do. And you would press number four and it would do the fourth one and uh and i remember just you know setting up to make what the heck did they call switch statements and what were you we using I, i'm guessing it was turbo pascal um and i remember no it was turbo c it was actually turbo c and i remember uh getting ready to make the switch statement it was like no no that's not how you do it and he just sort of declared the eight functions there and then made an array of eight function pointers to those eight things and then uh the menu executing code it was a simple matter of just you know indexing into that array and calling whatever function one found there and once you had this array you could hang other things on it besides the function pointer like the the menu text or the help text that is associated with the menu text or whatever other stuff you wanted right to me, it's about sometimes you want to pass in a function as a parameter. You, you don't really know what you want to do, right? Right. So you want to pass in the actual function or method itself that you want to, that you want to do. So that to me is... This is incidentally one of the things that strikes me as sort of strange about Ruby. And one reason I like Python a little bit better is that uh, Ruby inherits from Smalltalk and that it has the idea of a block. And a block is a function that you're passing in to another function. Uh, as if it were an argument, uh, you know, it's, right. a, it's a block of text that you're passing. Oh, sorry, a block of code that you're passing in, as if it were an argument uh, in your call. And then uh, inside uh, the function that you call, passing in the block, anytime that code executes the yield statement, it calls the function that was passed in, uh, which comes straight from Smalltalk. And I always thought it was strange that it had this uh, special method for making one argument be a uh, a lambda effectively an anonymous function or a block it, it just seems sort of a little bit like a little bit of a wart on the language why why can't you have an arbitrary number of of, of functions be lambdas why, why is there only one why are you limited to exactly one it's sort of it was one of those things that i never quite sort of strange about ruby now in practice it very very rarely do you ever need more than one 
in fact, possibly never. So, <laughs> so it's uh, not that big a deal. Right. Now, the, I think that was a good question. Um, we could do maybe one other very, very short question if we have one that's easy and short. Um, I don't know if we uh, do. Uh, well. Hello, Joel and Jeff. My name is Matias. I'm from Cordoba, Argentina, and I have a question for you. I'm a computer science student, and as I cannot apply for Joel's internships, I have been working for a voiceover IP company overseas. Outsourcing is quite popular and common nowadays, and with its advantages and disadvantages, has been putting food on my table for the past two years. What is your opinion and experiences on the matter? Thanks for your time, and congratulations on Stack Overflow. Ah, see, that's a short question, right? There's nothing to talk about here. <laughs> yes, a nice pick of a short question. <laughs> that's great. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I'm sure you don't do any uh, outsourcing, right? Or I mean, do you outsource anything at uh, programming-wise? Because it's your core competency of your business. You wouldn't outsource your core competency, would you? We really try not to. Yeah. So to yeah. me, outsourcing is about recognizing that programming is not your core competency. Software development isn't. So it's going to be more cost-effective for you to have professionals do it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think my personal perspective, and I'm sure one you agree, is... I, I wouldn't want to work for a company that was doing that anyway because what I love to do is not really considered a part of their core business sort of by definition at that point. Now, maybe if you were working for a company that did this, uh, in other words, you were you were outsourcing and you're the professional that small companies would turn to when they need you know programming work done, then you know I think that's fine. Um, but working for a company that's doing that is just really kind of depressing because it means what you love to do, they don't consider really that valuable anymore. <laughs> So wait, so let's uh, wait. wait, wait I'm, I'm confused here about oh, all these different companies. So you've got the company. Let's take a. Let's give them names. We've got some hypothetical company called Disney. No, no, makes, Acme. No, no, no. Okay, Acme. They make widgets. Yes. Uh, and they have needs for IT development of some sort. Right. But um, if you're going to be an IT developer at, at Acme, you're not treated very well. You're a typist. Nobody understands what it is that you do or why it is that you're you're good. And for various reasons, they hire all kinds of idiots to work with you in the same department because they just have no idea what a good programmer is. And you're never going to work your way up to CEO, and you're never going to be at those all-important executive retreats where the important decisions about um, whether to play golf in the morning or the afternoon are made. And um, because you're just not important to that to, to, to their core business, which is making widgets and dynamite, I think. Right. <laughs> Explosive widgets. <laughs> so you might, you know, it, it might, you know, all else being equal, it might even be better if uh, if Acme just outsources all their work to, um, let's call it, uh, um, code coders are us, where there's a, a gang of cool programmers and they're real careful about hiring the great programmers because that's what they do all day long, and uh, you know, and they just kind of move around from Acme to Zenith, uh, visiting different companies and solving their code problems, and then moving on to the next one. Right, and ideally, hey, you'd quit working at Acme and start working at you know Code R Us and become a small business person, right? To, mm-hmm. And probably make more money anyway. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Uh, these are the, the way these things often get started is that somebody is making whatever the maximum possible salary that can be paid to an individual is at a given company, and uh, and and that is less than the market rate for a good programmer. Um, so, for example, you know, with a certain level of experience, I remember at some point I was working at Viacom. And for complicated reasons, there was no possible way they could ever pay me more than the equivalent of about, let me see what I can remember. This is about 10 years ago. It was about $40 an hour. And the market rate for programmers in my area was closer to $80 an hour. 
And so for them to pay me anything like the market rate, uh, they pretty much had to hire me as a contractor instead of as an employee, which meant that I was Joel Spolsky Incorporated or whatever the case may be. Uh, Joel Spolsky, sole proprietor. And uh, I pretended to have a little quote-unquote consulting business, and I just sold my time to them at the higher rate. And they were able to do that. And it just sounds like a legal fiction, but but that that's the way these big companies are. Um, but but and these are actually how a lot of these companies get started. And then you you know you sort of you bring in a friend and you bring in another friend and you start taking a couple of extra gigs on. And if you're lucky, pretty soon you have a bunch of clients. Right. I, uh, I think my general advice here is you know life is really too short to do things that you don't enjoy doing. Uh, I mean, you spend eight hours a day at work. Mm-hmm. Why not do things that you love with people that appreciate the things that you do? Uh, yeah. So that's that's sort of the perspective from which I view. The, the offshoring and outsourcing. I mean, you can be on the receiving end of it. It could be a net positive, um, or you could be on the, the short end of the stick, uh, in which case it's it's not so good. Um, now, but then I, I do want to follow this to its logical extreme. So let's say that you're working as a in, as an individual consultant, and you bring on a couple of other people, and pretty soon you got a team of your 20 guys, uh, guys and girls, your 20, um, 20 professional technical developer type people, and you've got some salespeople, and you've got a whole bunch of clients lined up, and you're doing all these gigs for these clients. And then all of a sudden, what you're going to start to notice is that you're charging by the hour, and you're paying people by the hour, and therefore, the total maximum amount of profit you can make in this business is just a function of how many people you can hire. In other right. words, if you have 20 employees, then there's, you can imagine making $2 million a year in profit. Uh, that's kind of pushing it. But that's like based on sort of New York rates. And in order to have $4 million, you have to get up to 40 employees. And now all of a sudden, it's just a game to see how many employees you can get. And at some point, you start kind of reducing the quality of the employees a little bit. And it just becomes this gigantic recruiting exercise where whoever can recruit the best uh, makes the most profit. And in fact, I hate to say this, but Fog Creek actually started out with this as our initial goal, as the first thing we were going to do as a part of bootstrapping, uh, was to create uh, this consulting firm. And one of the reasons that we have such great conditions for programmers is that we thought that, that would allow us to win that recruiting war and be able to recruit the most people and treat them the best and have them stay with us the longest and therefore uh, be the most profitable in that kind of body shop business or the consulting business where you're just basically providing people with some where you're providing your customers with a, a human being with brains for a fixed number of hours. Uh, but compare that momentarily now to the software business, because in the software business, as soon as you've written some code, you can license it or sell it again and again and again and again and again without writing it again and again and again and again, which is very different than a typical IT consulting kind of arrangement. And uh, that means, among other things, that you can make a lot more profit because the profit is no longer constrained by the number of employees you can hire. It's just based on how many sales you can make, which is a function of how good your code is. So if you write good code, you probably want to start getting into you know, basically the licensed or the hosted software business where there's some kind of scale. There's a scaling that you can do that doesn't require you to bring on more warm bodies. And uh, that's really the long-term goal. And so whenever I, in the early days of Fog Creek, when I was trying to evangelize this idea to people, I would always draw two charts. And one was showing a line going up linearly and saying, well, you know, your profits are a function of the number of people. And that's the consulting business. But we also want to build a software business. And a software business, you sort of superimpose a hockey 
a hockey stick on that line. So it starts, takes a while to start up, but when it does, it goes up a lot faster than the number of people. And pretty soon, the core of the business is uh, is in selling software licenses or in hosting software that you provide for other people. And uh, it scales a lot better and you can make a lot more money faster. Right. And uh, one thing which really surprises me, and this is the only way I'm going to touch on the offshoring question of people in Argentina, in Eastern Europe, in, uh, in India, uh, uh, that uh, that are that are doing this kind of uh, uh, offshoring is they're all they're all looking at Hyderabad and, and uh, Bangalore as uh, as their model, which is they want to be they want to do the drudge work for cheap for American companies that don't want to do this stuff. And instead of looking at Israel as their model, and the Israeli model is not offshoring or outsourcing or or, or or taking the drudge work or taking the programming work and just dumping it uh, in some country where the wages are lower. The Israeli model is we're going to make some companies and these companies are going to do highly innovative things and they're going to sell software and they're going to make big profits uh, instead of just providing kind of warm bodies that are neatly bundled for you to use in, in, in packs of 10 with a program manager and two testers. So one thing that, that that's always a little depressing to me about um, much of the uh, offshoring world is that they're just not ambitious enough. You know, they're not ambitious enough to make real software companies or to make product companies. They still they're still trying to do this kind of low wage programming kind of thing, which uh, t- t- to me is you know a quick way to make a buck and to get started. But in the long run, you really want to be selling something where what you're selling is intellectual property because it can be sold again and again and again, and eventually it becomes much, much more profitable. Right. And I think that falls under the umbrella of just try to be good at your job. I mean, everyone I've ever worked with, that's really the only thing that I really ask of them or I really ask of the company that I'm working for. Just be really good at what you're doing or try to be really good. And you're right. If you set the bar as like, oh, we're just going to do basic drudge work, it's like, again, you probably wouldn't want to work for a company like that. Would you really? Um, so you're right. They're not aiming high enough. They should be trying to do, yeah. you know, boutique development at the very least, right? If you, if your model is by the hour, then do really good development by the hour that you're really proud of, um, and that's the kind of company that would I think attract developers that I would want to work with personally. So right. Yeah. So we should probably cut it off here because I think we're a little long. Okay. Well, um, I've got some deleting to do. Uh, in the meantime, uh, let's see. Do we have any announcements for this week? We had a great, by the way. Um, uh, we had a open house here at Fog Creek last week. How'd that go? It was pretty good. It was mostly your your people that came. <laughs> Are you serious? No, I'm just kidding. There were a lot of. I was surprised actually uh, at how many people came and heard about it from the podcast as opposed to uh, the website. And right. a lot of them actually, in turn, had never heard of me before they went to Coding Horror, and then they, you you started making this uh, 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 podcast type thing with this other character, and that's how they right. found. Well, I want, I want to renegotiate our contract now. Uh, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Well, no, not everybody. And also, <laughs> also, kidding. I had to tie down uh, the the uh, the Tumblr. The whole Tumblr team came out, and so I oh, had to nice. calm them down. Um, Would you wag your finger at them? I want finger wagging. <laughs> there was there was finger wagging. That's good. That's and uh, uh, so that was uh, actually that was a, a lot of fun. The uh, Fog Creek Open House. Um, we'll probably have another one as soon as we move into the new office. Um, I'm thinking um, 2014 right now. <laughs> Uh, is the schedule really off? No, I, there's just no way to know. I just can't okay. tell. All right. a, and you know what? They, they, they know, and they won't tell me. <laughs> you can't get them to use fog bugs. It's just like me. They won't use fog bugs. That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same problem. Um, well, what it is is that you know I can see that they're making progress every week, but it's really hard for me to tell like what's not done here and what's going to – I don't know. Uh, 
some, sometimes I'll go back two weeks in a row and it doesn't look like anything's happened. Sometimes it'll look like a, a lot of stuff has happened. There's a lot of activity going on there. And one thing which I'm relieved about is uh, when you're doing construction, uh, there's all this stuff that can delay you, uh, which is usually caused by long lead time items. Like you've ordered a very special light fixture and it's going to take 12 weeks to get. But the nice thing about those long lead time items is once they arrive, you just snap them in place. It takes no time at all to install them. And a lot of times these, these this can be done after uh, you've moved in. Uh, so um, it's, it's actually the, the stuff that takes a lot of time is putting up all the walls and the, the electrician doing all the wiring and the ceiling grid and ventilation and stuff. And that stuff has no lead time at all because it's just sort of common building materials that are readily available. Um, so that never really slows you down. And the long lead time items never really slow you down because that stuff eventually arrives and they just throw it all in in one or two days. Um, so I'm not entirely completely really worried about it yet. Right. Um, so anyway, there'll be another Fog Creek open house. You'll be able to check out our nice new office downtown. Um, in the meantime, uh, as usual, there is a, an online uh, a wiki where um, um, our listeners provide transcripts uh, of this program. And uh, you'll, you can find the link there uh, from blog.stackoverflow.com or you can just go to stackoverflow.fogbugs.com and look for the wikis. Right. Oh, and I had a thought. People who have sent in questions about Stack Overflow that we haven't gotten into or haven't gotten to play, please email me. And again, you know how to figure out my email address. Um, I will and add you to the email beta. Jeff directly. Yes. Yeah. yeah, email me, Jeff, directly. And I will definitely add you the beta as a, a way of compensating you for sending a question we didn't get to. And I think, honestly, you'll have better questions once you've actually seen the site anyway. Mm-hmm. So I view your, your question recording as your pass to get to the beta. And additionally, people who edit on the wiki, if you do, two, let's say, two minutes on the wiki, uh, email me and I'll hook you up uh, for the Stack Overflow beta as well. Right. So that's the easiest way to get into the beta and see it before everybody else. Uh, also, uh, if you want to, uh, we, we, we do welcome your questions. That We did a whole show of questions today, but um, we'll always try to play you know, at least one to three questions. So do keep sending them in. Uh, to send in a question, you can record an MP3 or Ogvorbis uh, sound file and email it to stackoverflow at... Oh, no, geez. podcast at. <laughs> podcast at stackoverflow.com. Are you using reverse Polish notation there? Is that what was happening? podcast at stackoverflow.com and uh, uh, yeah, just email in your mp3 or your Ogvorbis. If you don't have a way of recording it handily with your computer, go to uh, cinch.blogtalkradio.com There's a link on the website and uh, you can, uh, there's a phone number you can call which will record an mp3 for you which you can then send us and uh, that's it. See you next week. Bye. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.